0: Our reading today is 1 Corinthians 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Amen. Thank you, Caitlin. Welcome to Holy Trinity downtown this morning. We're glad that you're with us. And uh, uh, as Daniel said, we do have some upcoming one-time expenses. I think they total to move in about $87,000 um, with everything that needs to happen. Um, but as he said, the chairs are $75. So um, if you have $75 and are able to pledge it, great. If you don't, I don't think so, uh The Swiss Hotel will notice if you take your chair this morning. So feel free to, I don't know if you have a big jacket or something that you can sort of throw over it, but um, I won't say anything if you don't say anything, okay? I want you to think for a moment about uh, if you could visit any landmark in in the world, any historical site, maybe somewhere you've been before, maybe somewhere you've never been before, would you go to the Swiss Alps? And just stand, and these two in the front row, would, yeah? Would you go to the Eiffel Tower and then afterwards go and uh, dine outside somewhere and um, enjoy an amazing meal? Or would you go to the Grand Canyon? Would you take a stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and, and look out over the sweeping views? And think about how long it took for that to be crafted, for the river to cut its way through the edge of the sand and the stone? Would you go to Yellowstone? Or if you could go back in time, where would you go? Remember they had those things called the, the seven wonders of the world. Would you go to any of those? Would you go to, if you could go to any one of those, which one would you go to? To the great pyramids of Giza, to the hanging gardens of Babylon, to the temple of Artemis. There are some amazing places to visit. Uh, One summer, my family got in a, a van and took off west and got to see the Badlands. I'd never seen Mount Rushmore before, so that was incredible to think that it took someone 14 years to carve that into the face of a rock. Or if you think about some of the other wonders of our world, think of the, and a lot of you know about this, but the reversing of the Chicago River is like a, it's like an engineering wonder <laughs> that they were actually able to take the flow of the Chicago River, which is flowing into Lake Michigan, and because of the pollution that we were sending into Lake Michigan to send it down to St. Louis, so that they could have all of our all of our stuff. I want to talk to you uh, this morning about something that you might call a true wonder. Um, and one more thing, Chicago is per- possibly the the uh, inventor of the skyscraper. This is a little disputed, but I like this, to think that Chicago is that. But I want to talk to you today about something that um, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 29 of Isaiah calls a wonder of wonders. And there's a way in which I feel totally inadequate to speak on this topic today because it's one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. Of course, every preacher thinks that every time he stands up, like, this is the greatest thing, right? Um, but this is a focus on the cross of Jesus. And it's not an exaggeration to say that the cross of Jesus is the very center of our faith and is the very center also of of history. And I just want to make one simple claim for today, which is this, that the cross upsets and destroys human power and wisdom is also the cross that saves. And it's the only thing that saves. The cross that is, has the power to utterly annihilate human strength, confound human wisdom, is also the only object, the only source of salvation in the whole world. All I want to do today is show you four things that God's doing through the cross. And uh, I'll just give them to you one by one. God's doing something new. It's verses 18 and 19. God is doing something that is needed, which is verses 20 to 25. He's doing something new. He's doing something needed. He's doing something countercultural which is verses 26 to 31, and he's doing something sp- I'll call Spirit-empowered, which is verses one to five of chapter two. So that's where we're gonna go today, something new, something needed, something countercultural, and something Spirit-empowered is happening through the cross. Will you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you uh, that we, though we sometimes feel stuck in this world, stuck in in different parts of our lives, that you did something in which you broke into history and as the author of life, as the author of this play, entered into the play to save the characters, to save those who are walking on the stage of our humanity. We pray that you would speak to us today not in human wisdom but in your wisdom in the name of Jesus amen all right so first of all I'm arguing this morning that God's doing something new through the cross, which is to say that he's doing something unprecedented something that he had never done before something that was unexpected I was my wife and I were getting a new uh, sticker for our our car to register it and uh, we, this week we drove to City Hall and um, there, I was just struck as we were kind of circling around City Hall that there was a little cornerstone that said Anno Domini 1911. I thought that's kind of weird that City Hall is like marking the death of Jesus <laughs> or the birth of Jesus. Like we don't do that today. It seems kind of quaint and like of some time past. Anno Domini, as you know, means the year of our Lord in Latin. So somehow, like this, this building is marking that all of history turns on this event of Jesus being born into the world. It's like we can't even—I can't even really fathom the mayor, Lori Lightfoot, thinks of history that way. Maybe she does. Maybe she doesn't. I don't know. Here's what Paul is arguing, that something new happened at the cross, verses 18 to 19, chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So in one sense, you could say there's a couple things that he's doing that are new here. One is God in the cross is going to destroy something. It says here that he's going to destroy human wisdom through the cross. That's what verse 19 says. And I just, I'm wanting all of us to become more and more students of the Bible. So I'll give you a little hint here. When something's like set off like this, it means it's an illusion or a quote or it means it's from somewhere else in the Bible. So I want to dig a tunnel to Isaiah and sort of burrow from where we are to Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, because Paul's quoting it. So Paul is building this argument as he's written to the Corinthians. Turn, turn to uh, first, sorry, turn to Isaiah chapter twenty-nine, if you would. And I'm just going to put this a little bit more in context. What we're looking at. So this is what we're reading right now is 1 Corinthians. It's called a um, a situational epistle. Paul's writing to a group of people that wrote a letter to him, and he's responding to a bunch of things. We already saw that he that he speaks of their calling and their cleansing and the way that they've been graced by God and gifted by God, we've seen that. But we also took a little peek ahead and we saw that the the Corinthians were not the kind of church that you would wanna recommend someone to go to. Because one of the reasons is because they were arrogant. They're boastful and prideful. What, What Paul is arguing now, and well, I'll say this, part of the reason why they're boastful and prideful is the Corinthian culture, think of an urban culture, where rhetoricians, which were called sophists, were like, they were, think of them like TV personalities. They were the ones who were the most influential of the day, kind of a celebrity culture. And what Paul is starting to do is deconstruct the celebrity culture of 1 Corinthians. To do so, he references this verse in Isaiah chapter 29, where God says, Hey, those people who you think are so smart, I'm going to humble. Those people that you think are so powerful, I'm also going to humble. And I want you to see it in context. So take a look over at Isaiah chapter 29. I know it's a little challenging to jump from one text to the next. But the the verse that he quotes is the second half of verse 14 there. Where it says, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. He only quotes a little phrase of it. So he only like takes the last little part, which says that God's going to destroy something which is human wisdom. But in the context, look at what he's saying a little wider than that. What he's actually saying is, I'm going to do, God is going to do something so new, so unprecedented, that you could call it the wonder of wonders. You could call it the great wonder of the world. Isaiah, 600 years before Jesus is born, is saying, there's a day coming when God is going to take the blind and make them see. He's going to take the deaf and he's going to make them hear. He's going to take those who are walking in a deep sleep and he's going to wake them up. He's going to take the religious people who are far from me in their hearts and yet speak with their lips. And he's going to do something inside them that lets them truly worship him. That's what he's saying in context. So if you look at uh, verse 10, I'm going to start there in in Isaiah 29. It says, for the Lord has poured out on you a spirit of deep sleep. And he's closed the eyes of the prophets and covered your heads, the seers. What he's saying is the people of Israel, the Jews, were going through the religious motions. They didn't truly know God. And it was actually the judgment of God on them. That they were like in this deep sleep and they, I don't know if you've ever woken up from a deep sleep and you're just like, takes you a couple minutes to like recover. He's saying that that's what they're like. He's saying that religious people, particularly these religious people, particularly these religious people are like in a deep slumber and they cannot hear the voice of God. He goes on and he says, look at verse 13, he says, these people draw near with the mouth and honor me with their lips, while in their hearts they are far from me. I mean, that's happened to you before, hasn't it? Like, you're glad no one can see your heart as you're singing. You could even have your hands in the air and you're like thinking about the next Netflix show that you're gonna watch, right? I can't wait till the service is over. You're singing, you know, but this preacher's going too long. You're just making a list. Sorry, to my family who's sitting in the congregation and just heard me sing. Verse 14, he says, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people and with wonder upon wonder. What he's saying is that his plan is not over for the Jews. That his plan to save one people from all of the other peoples of the earth is not done for, even though they look like they're in a deep, deep sleep. He's going to call, he's going to wake them up, and he's going to do it in a particular way that confounds the wisdom of the wise. And it will be like, he says in verse 18, it'll be, here's what it's going to be like. You'll know it's come because the deaf will hear. You'll know it's come because the eyes of the blind will see. And those who are meek will obtain fresh joy in the Lord. This is the promise of the cross. Part of the promise of the cross is that it will open your eyes. It will help you to hear. It will give you a joy in the suffering of your life that you need so deeply. So what Paul is saying, you can turn back to 1 Corinthians. He's just saying, that God's going to do something new, which is to destroy the wisdom of the wise, but it's going to be so new, so amazing, that it's as if all of history is going to pivot and religious, the crisis of religious emptiness will be over. That's the new thing that God is going to do, pivoting human history in the cross to do something entirely noteworthy. My wife and I, um, for many, many years, needed to put some new tile down in our kitchen, but we threw the tiles away. And so they're just like broken tiles in there. And uh, this summer we gutted the whole thing. And it's like when you walk in, it's like it breathes a kind of, this is like a kitchen, okay? I'm talking about what God has done in history. He's gutting religiosity and renewing it to make it something entirely new. That's the first thing. God in the Christless of hopeless religiosity is going to pivot history, but he's going to do it through a hidden power, which is called the cross. So something that's new is God destroying the wisdom of the wise and exposing this hidden wisdom in the cross. Secondly, not only does God uh, pivot history towards this uh, hidden power, but he is going to functionally destroy all human power, all human wisdom, all human boasting in order to provide salvation. He's picking up on what he said in Isaiah chapter 29, but listen to what Paul says now, chapter 1, verse 20. He says, where's the one who's wise? This is Paul, like, doing a little trash talking. (laughs) This is Paul as if he was on the basketball court saying, okay, bring on the wisest person you got. Bring him to me. Bring on the debater of the age. Let's see what they got. He's saying, has not God, where's the scribe? Has God God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, humanity believes that humanity can save ourselves. That we don't need someone to reach down from heaven, someone to come down to us. Humanity has believed that if we just think hard enough or study hard enough or get enough degrees, we can somehow find God. If we just read enough. What Paul is saying is the professor has no power to save. It doesn't matter if you went to Harvard. Harvard doesn't get you into heaven. doesn't matter if you went to Princeton. Princeton will not give you peace. It does matter if you went to Northwestern, though because they'll teach you medicine and law and maybe even divinity or how to play football. You can learn about God at Northwestern, but you can't learn who God is. Only the cross can reveal who, truly, who God truly is. Here's what it says, verse 21. For instance, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we are to preach to save those who are who believe. What Paul is saying is that a master's degree won't save you. Seminary degrees can't put you into the presence of God. It's sort of humorous that you can get a degree that's called the master of divinity. I have one of those. <laughs> what does that even mean? Like I've mastered God or doctor of divinity. There's a hilarious scene in the movie Jerry Maguire. Has anybody seen that movie before? You just admitted it in church. As, for, as, as much as you hate Tom Cruise, he was okay in this movie, okay? Actually, there's two, there's like at least two phrases that have come into uh, our culture today through that movie. One is, you know, right at the end, Tom Cruise takes his taxi, and Renee Zellweger is in, in this group of women who are like bemoaning. The evils of men in the world and their heartbrokenness, and and then Tom Cruise comes in. Anyway, he said, you know, I had the greatest night uh, financially, but I felt incomplete. And then he says, "You complete me, right?" And she says, "Shut up! You had me at hello." But the other one, the other great line is when Cuba Gooding Jr is talking to tom cruise so just for those of you who don't know the story tom cruise is like a broker he's like an agent for athletes and cuba gooding jr is like an amazing athlete and there's this scene where um you already know where this is going most of you but there's some music in the background cuba gooding Jr. juniors in his kitchen and he's like kind of moving to this beat a little bit his buddy is behind him holding a football and He's on the phone with Jerry and he says, are you ready, Jerry? And Jerry says, I, I'm ready. And he says, here it is. And he says, show me the money. And then he says, I wanna make sure you're ready, brother. Here it is, show me the money. And he, then he says, Jerry, it's such a pleasure to say that. Jerry, say it one time with me if you would. And so Jerry McGuire says, Tom Cruise says, show you the money. no, 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 you can do better than that. I want you to say it, brother, with meaning. I got Bob Sugar on the other line. That's like another agent. And he's saying, I bet you can say it. Anyway, he starts yelling it at the top of his lungs and the whole, like all the office that is hearing it say, show me the money. And he just keeps saying it over and over. And why do I say that? I say it because throughout history, the Hebrews had continued to say to God, They had seen Moses in the miracles. They had seen Moses and Aaron turn, produce flies and produce frogs and produce a river of blood to put their hand in their garment and take it out to throw their staff down and make it become a a snake. They'd seen Elijah and Elisha. Throughout history, they'd seen all of these miracles. And so when Jesus showed up, the Pharisees and the Sadducees said, look, show show us a sign. So Jesus is like, okay, blind man, see. And they're like, show us another sign. And he says, deaf man, hear. And they say, show us another sign. And he says, dead man, come forward. And they're like, that's not good enough. He heals the blind. He opens eyes. He calls the dead to life. And when he comes into the world, when Jesus comes into the world, they're like, yeah, but where's Moses? Yeah, but where's Elijah? Yeah, but where's Elisha? What they didn't realize that God was going to do something new. And they kept saying to him, show us the signs Show us the miracle, or we will not believe. And so God eventually says to them, I'm only going to show you one sign. It's a Messiah on a tree. It's the Son of God, the author of life expiring upon a tree. It didn't fit inside the power perspective of the Hebrew people. Because they came from a line of power. And a man on a tree is a sign of weakness. The Greeks, on the other hand, they didn't say, hey, show me the power. What they said is, show us the wisdom. Because they didn't have Moses. They didn't have Elijah. They didn't have Elisha. They didn't have Aaron. They didn't have David. But they had Plato. They had Socrates. Socrates. They had Aristotle, they had Euripides, they had Sophocles, the Greeks had read all the good stuff, they'd read what you had to read in high school, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, you loved it, didn't, I? didn't you? Or Oedipus Rex, like those incredible wisdom. So when, when the Greeks are following Jesus, they're like, is that all you got, man? Maybe you could quote Plato or something? And they're saying, show us the wisdom. And God says, no, look at the cross. That's where you'll see my power, and that's where you'll see my wisdom. Here's what it says, verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here's the point, is that God is using the cross to destroy human conceptions of power and wisdom, but the cross actually is the portal to wisdom and the portal to power. God will save us from hopeless religiosity, from blindness, from joylessness, through the obfuscating power of the cross. Jesus is God's power crucified. Jesus is God's wisdom extinguished. Paul is speaking to a very proud people. We know that because throughout the book, he addresses it over and over. He says in chapter 4, Verse six, you might be puffed up. He says in verse 418, you're arrogant. Chapter five, verse two, you're arrogant. Chapter five, verse six, your boasting is no good. He's talking to a people who love a celebrity culture and he's saying, you're missing the beauty and the power. And the essence of all history if you miss the cross. So if you've been saying to God, show me something, the thing he wants to show you is the cross. Number one, God's doing something new. Number two, he's doing something we need, which is salvation. He's bringing salvation for us. He's bringing our salvation through the cross, and he's doing it in a way that kills our pride. All right, so... My main idea is this, that the cross upsets human wisdom and power, but it's also the cross that can save. It's the cross only that can save. Let me show you something countercultural. So what Paul does next is he, in verses 26 to 31, he he starts talking about them, and he says, what kind of people are they? And he's the countercultural thing that God is doing through the cross is creating a community of the cross. That's what he's doing in verses 26 to 31. God is creating a countercultural community. This is what he says in verse 26. He says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. He's actually saying, kind of, you guys are not real educated. You're on the curve. You're kind of on the front end of that curve. You're not super bright, you know, but God chose you to show the people with the PhDs that they can't find God on their own. Another way to say it is the church of Jesus is to be composed of PhDs and GEDs. It's to be composed of the rich and the poor, the wise and the foolish. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. God is not fonder... He's no more fond of intellectual slackers than any other kind of slacker. He says, if you're thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something that is going to take the whole of you brains and all. But fortunately, it works the other way around too. Anyone who is honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his intelligence sharpened. (laughs) What he's saying is the cross or the message of the foolishness of God on the cross is the means to educate yourself. You don't have to go to get a Ph.D. somewhere. He says one of the the reasons why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education in and of itself. And then he goes on and he says that's why an uneducated believer like John Bunyan was able to write a book that has astonished the whole world. John Bunyan had a third grade education. And he wrote one of the best-selling books of all time from inside of a prison. The cross is the center of God's wisdom in the world, and you don't have to go to graduate school to be educated. Educated, God's wisdom and God's world word will educate you. Same with power. How many of you are here from... How many of you are from Iowa? How many of you are from royalty? Like, why doesn't God just choose all of the descendants who are from royalty. Because which shows God's power more clearly? To choose the peasant and to choose the beggar or to choose the powerful? Actually, what the message is, is the one who has the power over all things, who's sitting upon a throne, said, let me go find those people from Iowa and Wisconsin. Like Oshkosh and Idaho. He's sending the King of kings and the Lord of lords to leave his throne to find the sinners, the rejects, the rebels, and to make them into a new people. Who understands the cross more? Who has more power? A Messiah upon a cross or 41 miles of tanks commanded by Putin. Every knee will bow to the crucified one. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. God chose what's foolish to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. He doesn't really like boasting. In fact, boasting is like part of one of the core sins. Can you imagine going up to God and saying, hey, look at what I made over here. Yeah, and then him being yeah, that's great. I gave you that power. I gave you that ability, and wait a second, stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Look at what I made, or on the edge of the Alps, look at what I made, or in the rim of the universe, look at what I made, or open up a spleen and cut it open and zoom in, look at what I made. Friends, doesn't like boasting, but he gives us everything through the cross. There's an incredible promise in verse 30. Because of him, you are in Christ. That is, if you put your faith in this this foolish Messiah on a cross. Now you're with him, and, and he lists a bunch of things that are yours: righteousness, that is a just lifestyle; sanctification, that is he makes you holy. He says, that woman is one of my divine daughters. She is part of the royal priesthood. Redemption says, I'm buying that slave to set that slave free so they can follow me. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So... The cross-cultural thing that he's doing, the counter-cultural thing that he's doing is taking a bunch of people who don't deserve his righteousness, don't deserve his favor, don't deserve his calling, don't deserve to be chosen and saying, you're mine. It's creating an entirely counter-cultural people. Holy Trinity downtown, let's be a community that welcomes people no matter what their economic status is. Let's be a people that welcomes people no matter what their religious status is. Let's be a people who welcomes people no no matter what their point of origin is. Let's be a people who welcomes people who are rich or who are poor. Let's welcome the rejects of the world because Jesus was rejected so that you might be found. There's something new that God's doing. There's something that we need, which is our salvation. And there's something counterculture, which is the church. And the last thing is, there's something spirit-empowered that he's doing here. And the main idea is the cross upsets human wisdom and power. And if it's the cross alone that can save, then let's never stray from the cross. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of spirit and power. In comparison with the celebrity preachers of the day, Paul looked stupid, weak. He had no smoke machine. He had no, like, flashing lights. Just some, they say Paul was kind of bow-legged, short, bald, ugly. Just preaching a message of a man on a cross. And he's saying, the reason why I wanted to preach to you in that way was because I didn't want you to think that it was my power that saved you. He would never have quoted Jerry Maguire because he would just only want you to see the cross and see who Jesus is. He doesn't want our faith to be in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. I believe in reading the great books. Um, Robert Hutchins convinced me of that. He was one of the presidents of the University of Chicago a long time ago. He wrote a book called The Great Conversation. And his basic claim is like all the intellectuals of his throughout history have all read a certain core of books. And, he, and this is like the introduction to the great books um, from the University of Chicago that was published a number of years ago. And it's very convincing. Like, if you want to understand the great intellectual conversation that's happening, you should read these books. But they will never lead you to Jesus. Only this silly, to us, picture of the divine Son of God, beaten, whipped, naked, mocked on a cross, is the source of wisdom. Stop saying, show me Socrates and I'll believe, or show me the next Plato and I'll believe. He's wiser than Plato. He's a savior greater than Socrates. And the centerpiece of his wisdom and the centerpiece of his power is the crucifixion of Jesus. I'm just gonna apply in three ways and then I'll get down off this platform. Number one, I'm just asking you to recenter your life on the foolishness of the cross. Whatever else is at the center right now, Paul wants to sweep it to the side and say, please recenter your life on the foolishness of the cross. Exchange it for the American dream that makes your life about the acquisition of things. Do not make your life about the enjoyment of pleasures. Enjoy them, yes, but don't make your life about them. Make the center of your life the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross in dying for you to give you a new life and to cleanse you. So recenter on that foolish thing. Secondly, not only recenter, but reinterpret your life through the humiliation of the cross. If you're going through suffering, then say, thank you, God, for letting me suffer like Jesus suffered. If someone reviles you and says something untrue about you, then say, thank you that I'm getting to be reviled with Jesus. Reinterpret your life, not through all of the pressing pressures of the American dream, but through this one interpretive event that is actually the way the world is supposed to work. What is the good life is what Socrates and others asked, and the answer is the cross is the good life, the humiliation of Jesus. If you've been humiliated by someone, remember that the Son of God himself was humiliated. And all of your accomplishments and degrees are really his accomplishments and degrees through you. Finally, so recenter your life, reinterpret your life, and then recommit to the community of Jesus because we need more foolish, dumb people. We need more people of low status like you and me. We need more people from Wisconsin and Iowa, and Idaho. Someone get, and Chicago. Amen. Thank you. Recommit to the community of the cross. You cannot build a countercultural community in the center of the city by yourself. You have to have a calling. He's saying you're chosen. You have a calling and a gifting that God alone has put upon you. So find it and live it. With others in this community what would you say is the wonder of wonders the eiffel tower the grand canyon the swiss alps the prophet isaiah says the wonder of wonders is the coming of jesus and the cross and that god is doing something entirely new and entirely needed and entirely counter cultural, and entirely Spirit-led in the cross. If you're foolish, welcome to the club. If you're powerless, God has a plan for you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this day, and we thank you for the message of the cross, and we pray that we would walk in humility. Lord, for those who are here this morning who need cleansing, grant cleansing. For those who are here who need hope, grant hope. For those who are here who are fearful, remind us again how Christ walked to his own death. And may our hope be in you. Thank you that through the cross, you're destroying wisdom, destroying human power, even the power of all the political leaders of the world but that it is the one way in which we might be saved. To God be the glory. Amen.